This is episode 194 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Wendy Wall, co-editor of The Poulter Project. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. And a beam would run up and down in that channel, and the beam was controlled by a winch under the stage. When a, a person came in on a without a cloud, he would sit on that beam and the stagehand would lower him down to the stage floor where he could get off and dance, as Sabatini said. And you could also do it with a cloud at that period by actually having a cut-out cloud, cardboard, painted like a cloud, mounted on the front of the beam with the actor behind it. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When Shakespeare performed scenes like the ocean waves of the Tempest, the flying acrobatics of ghosts, or had his characters change location from the streets of Verona to the castles of kings of England, there were technologies, machines, and specialty techniques used in the 16th century to accomplish these feats of nature and fantastic visual effects on stage. Our guest this week is an expert in early modern performance illusions and the machines used to create them. We're delighted to welcome Frank Moeller, Professor Emeritus of the Department of Theater and Dance at Appalachian State University. He joined us today to share the history of 16th century flying machines, set changes, trap doors, and even elevators that were used in Shakespeare's lifetime. Dr. Frank Moeller began at the Ohio State University in engineering physics, but graduated with a BA in theater, an MA in theatrical design, and a PhD in theater history. Over his career, Dr. Moeller created more than 125 set designs and 170 lighting designs, in addition to over 20 publications and 50 invited lectures or papers. He has also been involved in theater production as an actor, fight arranger, and in theater management. Moeller has been an active member in a number of professional organizations, including the United States Institute for Theater and Technology and the Southeastern Theater Conference, the largest comprehensive theater organization in the world, which he served as president. Moeller has received many grants and awards throughout his career for teaching, scholarship, creative activity, and service, including a University of North Carolina Board of Governors Excellence in Teaching Award and the Suzanne Davis Award for Service to Theater in the South. Hello, Frank. Welcome to the show. Hello. Frank writes for an article on the Appalachian State University website that we'll link you to in the show notes for today's episode that, quote, Sabatini described a flying machine that allowed a person to be lowered to the stage without using a cloud so that he may immediately walk about and dance, end quote. The technology for this device was very crude compared to the effects that followed a few years later. Frank, what was the method of flying on stage that incorporated a cloud and how was this device 
innovative from that past technology? Well, actually, I should say a few things about Sabatini before I get into that. He was a, an architect for the noble courts in Italy. And one of his jobs when they were having a festival or a visit from a, a, another nobleman would be to design and build a temporary theater in the great hall of the palace. And this theater was a proscenium style theater, very unlike what was done in England at the same period. So the audience would be at one end and the stage would be at the other end. And the stage was a scenic stage with scenery at the sides, back and top of the, of the stage itself. It was essentially a, an illusion, trying to create the illusion of an actual place. Now, all of the effects or most of them took place on an inner stage that was behind the main performance area. So they were as far away from the audience as you could possibly get. And the English theater during this time, of course, had a thrust stage with the audience on three sides, no scenery. And the private theaters were similar, except they were also in a hall. So the audience was at one end and the stage at the others. Now, Sabatini in 1638 wrote a, essentially a stagecraft handbook. Unfortunately, everything in it was out of date by the time he wrote it. And what he was really describing was the, the techniques and effects that were done at the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th century. Now, the effect that you were talking about was done in the late 16th century, and it was done on the inner stage, and it consisted of a channel that ran vertically along the back wall of the theater, and a beam would run up and down in that channel, and the beam was controlled by a winch under the stage. When a, a person came in on a without a cloud, he would sit on that beam and the stagehand would lower him down to the stage floor where he could get off and dance, as Sabatini said. And you could also do it with a cloud at that period by actually having a cutout cloud, cardboard, painted like a cloud, mounted on the front of the beam with the actor behind it. Now, later in the middle of the 17th century, this, this was done without having it done at the back of the theater with a channel of some sort but actually a device that could be lowered in the main performance area. And the, the earlier effect, as I said, is rather crude, but one reason why it was somewhat effective was it was being done in candlelight. Those theaters, as the Stuart Court theaters uh, later in England, were indoor theaters and they were lit by candlelight, which meant it was fairly dim. So things looked a little bit better than they might've looked otherwise. There was a, a very effective flying effect that was done in Florence in 1589 for a production that was done as a part of the wedding for Grand Duke Ferdinand and Christine of Lorraine of a play called La Pellegrina, in which Apollo flies in, dances in the sky, lands on the stage, and kills a dragon. And fortunately, we know how that was done because of court records in Florence. The Apollo that flew in was a cutout or a puppet. And he was suspended by wires so the stagehands could move him around the sky and then brought him down to the stage floor where he was immediately replaced by a live actor who came on and did the, did the Kill the Dragon dance. Sabatini, as you mentioned, was in Italy. So were his methods being applied by someone like Shakespeare or was this an entirely separate theater culture going on? Actually, the difference was, was great between the type of theater Sabatini was talking about, which was a court theater, and the public theater in England that Shakespeare performed in and wrote for. So Sabatini's machine really couldn't have been put on the thrust stage. However, there was another 
architect at that time, a German architect named Joseph Furtenbach, who had studied in Italy and learned some of the things done at the Florentine court. And he described a machine that could have been used in Shakespeare's theater. It was a profile cloud that had a seat in the middle of it. And it was uh, suspended by a winch and the stagehand could turn the winch and lower the cloud and performer down between the wall, the, the ceiling panels to the stage floor. Now that could be adapted to the Globe Theater since the Globe Theater had a heaven or a shadow over the thrust stage and a trap door could open in that ceiling. And this device could actually be lowered down to the stage floor just with a simple winch device. So it could have been used. Now again, verisimilitude is very important on the scenic stage. You wanted to create this illusion of reality. And that really wouldn't be possible on the Globe Theater or any outdoor theater because you're doing it in daytime with daylight. And the, the groundlings, of course, would be standing around the thrust stage and they could look up and they could see the trap door open and the winch turn and the cloud coming down. So the, the effect on the Globe stage would not have been as effective as it would have been on a scenic stage. One of Shakespeare's plays that uses a lot of thunder and lightning on stage is The Tempest. There's a huge scene in that play involving a shipwreck during a storm. Frank, what machines would have been used to create the sound of thunder on stage for the 16th century? Well, actually, thunder on stage started back in the Greek theater. Julius Pollux, who wrote in the 2nd century CE, said that to create thunder, you pour a bag full of stones into a brass vessel. But uh, Serlio, Sebastiano Serlio, another architect, in 1514, wrote a book in which he described thunder as being created by rolling a large stone in the overhead of, over the theater itself. Sabatini created a what is called a thunder run. It was a wooden channel with steps in it, and a cannonball would be dropped into the thunder run, and it would roll down the run, bouncing down the stairs. So it would go rumble, rumble, boom, rumble, rumble, boom, rumble, boom, 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 boom. As it faded away. Something like that might have been used in the tiring house. It wouldn't have been effective again. But in the 18th century, several theaters used vertical thunder runs. And those thunder runs were essentially a tube that ran from the, the floor of the theater all the way up into the grid overhead. And they had baffles in them. So a cannonball could be dropped into that and it would fall down. And it would take up much less space than a horizontal th thunder run would take. That type of, or a similar type of device uh, of that sort is still used in some theaters on the continent in Europe. Would lightning have also been artificially created on stage for Shakespeare's lifetime? It could have been. It would have been more difficult, again, than a scenic theater. Serlio, described, who was, uh, wrote the book in 1545, described how to do it. And he said, you take a box full of, of resin, and the top of the box has holes in it. And there's a candle on the top of the box, and the stagehand makes a throwing motion, and the resin comes out through the holes, and it is lit by the candle, and you get a flash of light across the stage. Furtenbach also did that, and he said you, you put Greek resin in the stagehand's hand, and he's holding a candle, and he makes a throwing motion. And again, it has the same effect. The, the Greek resin is lit as it goes across the stage. But certainly, I went a step further. He said you could create a thunderbolt or a lightning bolt is what we would call it. And that consisted of a rocket that was on a wire that was stretched from one side of the stage to the other. 
And on that rocket was painted gold with sparkle, which is essentially glitter. And at the proper time, the stagehand would light the rock and it would flash clear across the stage. Again, you've got to be able to hide the stagehand somewhere. So those, all of those things could have been used, but the question would be, is where would be the stagehand that actually did it so they couldn't be seen by the audience? And it's possible. It would be, it would be possible. Now, Furtenbach had another fun device. He created rain and hail in his theater, but it was created for the audience, not on stage. And he suggested that to create rain, you drill holes in the ceiling over the auditorium above the seats of the prominent ladies. And then you drip rose water through those holes onto the ladies. And for hail, he suggested you just drip, you drop candies through the hole in the ceiling onto the audience. This was actually done in England in 1573 when a Polish prince visited Oxford. And uh, a report said, the tempest wherein it rained small confects, rained rose water and snow of an artificial kind all strange, marvelous, and abundant. Certainly the best way to rain (laughs) hail down onto an audience is for it to turn (laughs) out to be candy. (laughs) That's brilliant. What about the sea crashing into the ships? What would Shakespeare's performances have used for things like ocean waves? They wouldn't have, at least in my opinion. There were a variety of wave machines used for the marine scenes in, in plays and operas and things during this period. Simple ones were profile, a board cut with a wave shape on top. Sometimes they used a blue cloth that would be stretched across the stage and it would have ropes underneath so the stagehands could flip the ropes up and down and create the effect of kind of of waves on the stage. But the the best one was a serpentine column that was horizontal. And as you turned the column, it gave you the effect of a wave moving across. And they would have a series of those behind each other. And of course, all this would be done on the inner stage in Italy. But that type of wave machine is still used at Drottningholm Theater in Sweden, and they still do productions in that theater. I don't think they would have used a wave machine in the public theater or even in the private theater. In Tempest, they could use wind, they could use thunder, they could use lightning, a lightning bolt. The dialogue of Shakespeare's scene, that storm scene in Shakespeare, says what's going on. He's telling us what's going on. And they could do like actors do in the modern theater. Actors' movements of being thrown from side to side and falling down and things like that could help carry the idea of a tempest. Now, lightning would, uh, lighting would also help, but you couldn't use lighting in the public theater. But you might be able to use lighting in the Blackfriars, in one of the private theaters. There is in uh, Decker's Seven Deadly Sins of London uh, a line that says, all the city looks like a private playhouse when the windows are clapped down, as if some nocturnal or dismal tragedy were presently to be acted. So if you could dim the stage a little bit, the the storm, again, could be a little more effective. And remember, in Henry V, Shakespeare in the prologue asked the audience to imagine a lot of things on stage. We've discussed previously on our show about Ben Johnson and the staging of some impressive court masks, making the case that court masks were more elaborate than performances staged by the King's Men, even performances Shakespeare's company would have presented at court. Frank, what were the technological differences between court masks and theater performances by the King's Men? Were these presentations different in terms of what kind of illusions and technologies would have been used? I mean, you're mentioning a distinction between the low light versus the 
the thrust stage, it sounds like it would have been a completely different setup. It was a completely different setup. The performance of the King's Men when they were asked to go to court to perform wouldn't have been on a scenic stage like the, the court masks would have been. The staging probably would have been very much what they would have done at the Globe or Blackfriars, just in a different space. And let's face it, these performers were used to going from one space to another. During plagues, they would go out to the countryside and play in villages, things of that sort. So they were used to taking their performance from the public theater or the private theaters and moving it to a, a different venue. The masks were much more expensive to produce than the productions in the public and private theater. The, the masks were done to glorify the royalty. And we know from court records that when sometimes when the professional players did go to court, and if they played in the Great Hall, the court would set up seating, but they wouldn't be setting up scenic stage. When a mask was produced in the Great Hall, the seating would be set up and very expensive sets would be set up on the scenic stage and costumes were, were going to be built because they were going to be worn by the performers in the masks, which were the courtiers themselves. The theaters that were used in the Great Hall, again, were temporary, just like the Italianate theaters. The professionals sometimes played in other venues at court, like the cockpit in court, which had originally been a, a cockpit where you had cockfights. And Inigo Jones, who was the court architect there and who had actually studied in Italy at the Florentine court, actually renovated the cockpit into the cockpit in court. And it was sometimes used by the professional players in court itself. There's also times when professionals were hired to perform in the, in the court masks, not in the regular scenes, but in some of the, the anti-masks, the, the, the mean and nasty characters that sometimes appeared in the, in the masks. And sometimes some of the players were actually hired to coach the courtiers who actually were the main performers in the masks. We often mark the end of Shakespeare's writing career with the burning down of the globe in 1613, which happened as a result of a special effect gone wrong. The cannon that was fired caught the theater on fire. Frank, why was the cannon able to set the theater on fire? This has always been something that surprised me, given how this is a performance space. They ought to have been, you know, professionals that knew how to accomplish a lot of these feats. Was this just a horrible accident or were pyrotechnics not normally used at a location like the Globe? They may have been used somewhat like the, the lightning effect or something like that. But in this case, we actually have more information than we do about a lot of things having to do with the Globe because we have several accounts of this fire, which is very unusual. And first of all, the cannon was probably not the type of cannon we associate with the movies like Hornblower and things like that, where there are these huge cannon on the ships that would be firing at each other. They also used something called swivel guns, which were very small cannon, the smallest of, the, of those things called cannons, and they were only about three feet long. And they would have been loaded with gunpowder and then wadding, which is essentially a scrap fabric or something like that. They, they'd cram in to hold the gunpowder in place, and then it was fired. And perhaps one of the reports that we have says that it was negligently fired. And that may mean that it was misaimed, so it shouldn't have been aimed at the thatched roof of the theater, or that it had been overloaded, so there was more fire of gunpowder coming out of it. 
they were very lucky that it was the thatch that caught on fire because the fire burned down instead of burning up. And that way everyone could get out. And the only real damage other than the, the total loss of the theater was one man had his britches set on fire, which was put out by a bottle of ale. In the Italian theater, we have information. There was a man who had got to visit backstage and he wrote a report of what he saw. And one of the things he said was that there were vats of water overhead on the beams over the stage. So if there was a fire, they could be tipped over and put out the fire. Fire was always a threat in the theater. And it was up until the 19th century, because until then, live flame was what was used for lighting. I have a, a quote from Sabatini about stagehands, since the, the fire in the globe may have been the result of a stagehand who had done the wrong thing. And what Sabatini said about stagehands is that they should be worthy and sincere men, and that fools and thick-witted persons should not be allowed to participate. And actually, the same thing is true in the theater today. I might also mention, when they built the new Shakespeare Globe in London, they had to worry, they wanted to use the same materials that have been used in the original Globe Theater. And there was a problem because modern building codes do not allow thatched roofs. And so they had to do a lot of experimentation. And finally, they got approval for a specialized sprinkler system and chemicals to be able to use thatch on the roof of the Shakespeare Globe in London. I know we would love to explore more about this topic, special effects, stage hands, as well as the construction of the theater and their fire, fire preparations. Would you have some favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, one of my favorites, I think I have it here somewhere anyway, uh, written by Gurr, and it's a Shakespearean stage in that he talks about the Shakespearean stage. Another one which has a lot of good information about the theaters is... Oral, I think it was by Oral, and it's the theaters of Inigo Jones and John Webb, in which he discusses each of the theaters that was designed by that were designed by Inigo Jones or recorded by his assistant John Webb, and those are two excellent sources. Uh, another one, just about a special effects, but it's mainly about what was done on the continent, was a a book that was edited by Bernard Hewitt called the Renaissance Stage, and it has translations of the uh, writings of people like Sabatini, Serlio, and Furtenbach. Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much. We'll link to each of these in the show notes for today's episode. So that is a great place to stop by and check out places you can learn more. Now, Frank, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I should ask, and I have to stay there for a long time, but I'm going to assume I do. Probably the book I would take, actually, it should be plural, Inigo Jones' The Theater of the Student Court by Stephen Orgel and Roy Strong. It's two volumes, and both of the volumes are oversized volumes, so that should take me quite a while. I have used it in the past for some of my research, but I've never had the time to sit down and read those two volumes from cover to cover. So this could probably be a, a good opportunity. It contains information, all the drawings that exist for the Stuart Court masks and the scenic plays that were done by the courtiers in the Stuart Court before the interregnum. Oh, that sounds fascinating. What a productive use of your desert island time, for sure. <laughs> what is next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? 
Well, I've been retired for 17 years, so I shouldn't be doing anything at all. <laughs> However, I, I've tried to remain uh, active, and I've just completed an article on the scenic uh, change in, on the continent, which essentially was invented in the 17th century and remained the, remained the same until the 19th century. I'm also beginning to work on a reconstruction of a production that was done at the Stuart Court floor. I mean, it was a, a French pastoral play that was performed by Queen Henrietta Maria and her ladies for the king. And we have complete drawings for that particular show and the argument, the description of what the show was. So a, it's one of the few shows from that period in which uh, at least the visual aspects of the show can be reconstructed. Oh, that sounds fabulous. I knew being retired wasn't going to keep you from being on some projects for sure. Thank you so much, Frank Moeller, for being here and walking us through stage and special effects for Shakespeare's Lifetime. This has been a really fun conversation. I thank you for being here. Thank you. Make sure you stop by the show notes for today's episode to find pictures of some of these designs and Sabatini's work, as well as Indigo Jones's work in the show notes for today's episode. We'll have more information for you there on court masks, as well as a lot of the visual elements like the machines that you can really see. Frank has sent us over some of his own diagrams and designs and has graciously allowed us to include those in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go by CassidyCash.com slash episode 194. That's CassidyCash.com slash e. EP194 to check out all of those resources. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave us a comment and a rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about the Bard. For exclusive episodes, bonus content, and printable resources that go beyond the podcast, be sure to explore our membership platform at castycash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.